We are in 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be continuing Paul's last letter that he ever writes, and it's to Timothy now, who is still pastoring over a church in Ephesus. Now again, just to remind you, this is Paul's second letter, and it's a very human letter. You, you, it's, it's a letter of encouragement to Timothy, but you also hear uh, the urgency from Paul because Paul seems to be well aware that his time on this earth is short. He says in chapter 4, I've run the race, I've finished the race, I've fought the good fight, I've kept the faith. We don't know how long has passed since Paul's first letter to Timothy, but he begins with the same theme of 1 Timothy, guard the gospel, guard that good deposit which was given to you, which was entrusted to you. And what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Put simply, simply, it's life is found in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Life is found in Christ. In 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul wrote, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. In 1 and 2 Timothy, Paul encourages Timothy over 25 times to be bold, to stand up, to guard the gospel, to be willing to confront issues that threaten the message of the gospel, to be strong. That would give us some indication that maybe Timothy was wavering a little bit in the face of intense persecution and seeing his mentor in prison. It's quite possible that Timothy was simply afraid, afraid to move forward in the face of opposition. And that's what fear does. Fear paralyzes us. It's a tool used by Satan to prevent followers of Jesus from carrying that life-saving message of hope, that Jesus came and he died for you and me, and he rose again, defeating death. And anyone that will put their trust and faith and allegiance in Jesus Christ, they will be saved. Fear keeps us from sharing that message with our friends and our families. Fear is what keeps us suffering this morning in silence. Fear is what keeps us from confessing our sins one to another. Fear is what keeps us from experiencing true healing as we admit to one another that we're struggling. Fear paralyzes us. And Paul tells Timothy that fear is not from God. That this is what's from God. God has given us a spirit of power. And again, as we talked about this last week, there's a lot of things that come to mind when we talk about power. And I think the term power is misused in the church today to simply mean signs and wonders. But we're talking about something far greater than that. We are talking about the resurrection power of God. In Ephesians 1.17, Paul wrote to this church that Timothy was pastoring. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That he'd give the eyes of your understanding, that your, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of your calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power? Toward us who believe. According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's resurrection power. See, this message that we carry as ambassadors into a world that is dying and hopeless is the power to come and live. 
And that power is only through the name of Jesus Christ. That's why for Paul, this is the single most important thing on his mind as he sits in a damp, dreary, dark dungeon. He's thinking about the gospel going forward. It is the most important thing to him. He says, God has given you a spirit of power. And he's given you the spirit of love. That means you care. You are genuinely concerned about others experiencing what you have experienced. It's a self-sacrificial love and a desire to see others receive that same resurrection power that you have. God has given you power. He's given you a care and a concern for those who are separated from God. And he has given you a sound mind. That means a mind that is in tune with his. That you are discerning. That you're disciplined in understanding. You're trained to listen to the Spirit of God so you now know how to live out his plan of redemption. Guys, if sharing the gospel was simply regurgitating a message, our efforts as the church should be to purchase every advertising uh, sign and every commercial slot. We should be paying millions of dollars to buy a commercial uh, during the Super Bowl that just prints out the gospel message. But the gospel message should be shown and told. It should be lived out. And we need the discernment of the Spirit to know how to reach those who do not have a relationship with Christ. It's more than just regurgitating a message. That's why Paul told Timothy in chapter 1, it's about the way you live. When the message and your life don't match up, that does so much more harm than good. So God has not given you a spirit of fear, Timothy. He's given you the spirit of resurrection power. He's given you a deep love and care and concern for others. And he's given you a clarity of thought. Now towards the end of chapter 1, we discovered where some of that fear was coming from with Timothy. See, Paul's frequent imprisonments... Oh, that one, Sorry. That was cool. Paul's frequent time in prison caused some of his co-workers to question whether he was not actually in God's will. Paul suffered so much for the gospel that people looked at his suffering and thought, well, if God's a God of love and he's all-powerful, why would he cause Paul to suffer so much? It kind of emphasizes the point. I like that. There were many co-workers of Paul saying that he wasn't favored by God. Why would he be rotting away in a prison? Why would he be spending his last days in a prison? Kind of like Job's friends, right? Who came alongside him and they were just a huge encouragement. What have you done wrong, Job? Confess your sin. Have you ever felt that way? Where life is just one trial after another, and you're asking God, what have I done? Now, don't get me wrong, there's self-inflicted pain. There's pain that is simply the result of us being kind of stupid and doing things that are self-destructive. But sometimes we forget that following Jesus is an invitation to come and suffer. Come and suffer. In Matthew 7, 13, Jesus wrote, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. But narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Again, not a popular message today. 
Paul here in chapter 2 is inviting Timothy to come and suffer for the gospel. Chapter 1, Paul charged Timothy, guard the gospel. But now he says, Timothy, I know my suffering gives you anxiety. I know the fact that I'm in prison now and I will probably spend the rest of my life in prison and maybe be executed for my faith. I know that brings a great deal of worry to your mind. That's okay. Come and suffer for the name of Christ. Paul writes in verse 8 of chapter 1, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Are you willing to suffer for the gospel? In this culture of comfort, where that's what we seek out more than anything, that comfortable couch that has the cup holder, some USB ports so I can plug in my devices, maybe a little massager in the back. We live for comfort. But Christ calls us, come and suffer. Second Timothy chapter 2, look at verse 1. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace of that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy, as a, as a pastor, as a, a Christian leader, as an example to your flock, be strong. Now, one of the biggest fears, and I know I've shared this with you before, but one of my biggest fears as a pastor is giving you the what without the how. It's really easy to talk about what we should be doing. It's a lot more difficult to find a path forward and I think we fail one another when we tell our kids or those we're training up and mentoring or those we're pastoring, hey, this is what you need to do without giving them a clear plan of how to do that. It's kind of, you guys have heard me use the phrases imperatives and indicatives, right? And an imperative is what you must do. And an indicative is, here's how you do it. An imperative without the indicative is lifeless. Let me give you an example. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, we'll, we'll have it up there. The imperative is we must be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. But how? How do we go about that? How do we carry the message and the person and the reflection of Christ out to a world that desperately needs to see it? Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and now has given us the ministry of reconciliation. The imperative is that we have the ministry of reconciliation. We have the high calling and prize to go into the world and tell people, be reconciled to God through Jesus. You're separated from your creator. He loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But the only way that's possible is not through good works, but through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I've been reconciled with God. I desire that for you as well. Paul says he has given us the ministry of reconciliation, but first he reconciled us to himself. Verse 19, that is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's the point. Every imperative that you see in the New Testament 
everything that you must do is always tied to the finished work of Christ. Everything you must do is always connected to the gospel. Because here is the gospel. When you read God's word and you see the things that we're called to, you must understand this first. We can't do it. Anything of eternal value, you cannot do. You can't do it. But Jesus came, and he did it. And now through him, you can do it. What are you talking about? There is nothing we can accomplish in the flesh. And that's going to be the message to young Timothy or older Timothy now. Be strong, Timothy. But that strength is not going to come from you. I mean, imagine even that, that phrase, be strong. Imagine you are wanting to get in shape. I know, crazy. But imagine you're wanting to get in shape and you go to the gym. And you say, I want a personal trainer. And so they sign you up with a personal trainer and you show up and it's your first meeting and you're like, okay, what am I supposed to do? And he says, be strong. That'll be $100, please. <laughs> I feel like church can be that way sometimes. Hey, be more loving. Be more self-sacrificial. Be more like Jesus. I, I know I need that. But how? How? Those two words, be strong, are better translated, strengthen yourself. Become able. It's the same word Paul uses in his letter, again, to the same church in Ephesus. In Ephesians 6.10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of whose might? His might. Be strong, strengthen yourself in the Lord and in the power of his might. Strengthen yourself, Paul says to Timothy, in the gospel of grace that is in Christ Jesus. Become strong in the power that rescued you from the grave and gave you new life. See, the key to strength is to understand it's not ours. And I'm talking spiritual strength, the strength to endure the reality that we live in a fallen world with fallen people and we hurt one another. And there's a cultural tide that flows against the good plans of God. And as soon as you came to know Christ, you were walking upstream. You ever feel that way lately? That, that you're, you're in the twilight zone? That our culture is just moving like a, a massive wave heading one direction and you're standing here going the opposite way. You're going to need strength for that. You know what's even more powerful sometimes it feels? We've talked about this at length, is that person that you face every single morning when you wake up. We have these desires, that old man that lives in us that seeks to pull away from the things of God and serve the flesh, and we wake up every morning to that. It takes strength to walk the difficult path. Be strong, Paul says to Timothy. And that strength is not your own. It is the strength of God. And that's where we have to begin. We have to walk in His strength. So how do we train ourselves? How do we become strong in what specifically the grace of God? Through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. Paul is going to, again, tell Timothy how to train, how to strengthen himself. He says, 
First, the things you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That means the gospel isn't simply for you. A lot of people, they get saved, and then in this world, they go into hiding. I've got what I need. I've got my insurance. I have eternity promised to me, so I'm going to hunker down and wait for just the, the wave of this world to pass. And I understand the draw. Sometimes I think about running away to the mountains, raising my family off of game and corn and but then I realize I don't know how to hunt, and I have never grown anything before. But you know what? We can run away, but guess what's still going to be there? Our flesh, our sinful minds. The gospel is to be shared, and the, greatest path, the quickest path to spiritual weakness is to not live out our faith, to not share it. To not desire for others to hear the same truth that has dramatically transformed our lives. The easiest way to become weak is to not pass on the gospel. You know what atrophy is, right? If any of you have broken a leg or an ankle and you've had to be, be off your feet for a while, you know what atrophy is. Your, your, your body becomes weak from lack of use. And the quickest way for us to become weak is not to live out our calling here on earth as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Some of you are asking, where's the joy in my walk? My first question would be, are you sharing your faith? Are you sharing your faith? Don't just guard the gospel, pass it on. That good deposit that was entrusted to Timothy and entrusted to others are you entrusting it to those around you? You know, I think about this a lot now as I get older and I see more grays in my beard and less hair on my head. I think about where's the next generation spiritually? Where's our next generation of pastors coming from? Those who have been taught, those who have been trained, and now it's time to put that training into practice. Where's the next generation of pastors who are willing to sacrifice their comforts for the cause of Christ? Where's the next generation of spiritual leaders willing to lay down their lives for the glory of God and the good of others? Where are the shepherds who are willing to walk along walk with people going through tragedy and celebrating with them in triumph. I know that there are some of you here, young people, who when you think about leadership, something stirs up inside of you. You feel that, you feel that calling to be one that people can count on, but you're afraid of the costs. You want to get that hand up and say, man, I, I want to be someone that others can look to as an example. I want to be someone who can lead well and serve well. But when you think of the costs, it scares you. My encouragement to you this morning, don't ignore that calling. Don't ignore it. You know what we tend to do? Oh, I'll just wait until I'm a little bit older. I'll wait until I get married. Or I'll wait until the kids are raised. Or I'll wait until I'm retired. And then all of a sudden, life has passed us by. And God was calling us every step of the way to be a Christian that was willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. Let me tell you something. And I know I'm only in my 40s, but I think anyone older, older than me will attest this, to this as well. You have no idea how fast this life passes by until it passes you by. Blows my mind that I have a son graduating high school. When he was just in a car carrier in the children's ministry two weeks ago. That's what it feels like. Goes by. Aaron tells me not to talk about this because she starts crying, so... But he's about to move out and start his life and be a man. And it happened like that. 
So I encourage you, young people, if God is stirring you up, say exactly what Samuel said when he heard that voice. And he kept going over into Eli's room. Eli, are you calling me? No, I didn't say anything. Go back to sleep. Three times. Finally, Eli said, it might, it might be the Lord. And Samuel finally said, Lord, it, here I am. So here's the chain that Paul gives Timothy. Think about this. From Christ to Paul, the gospel traveled from Christ to Paul, and then from Paul to Timothy, and now Paul tells Timothy to entrust the gospel to faithful people, which Timothy did, and from those faithful people it traveled to others, and guess what? Here we are. Will the chain continue with us? Look at verse 3. You therefore must endure hardship. Oh man, ouch. Would you underline that? Next time you hear a, a message where they say something that's contrary to this, that there's no suffering for the believer if you have enough faith, listen, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Paul's going to give us three analogies here. He's giving Timothy three analogies. First, that of a good soldier. Verse 4, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the, the rules. So we have a soldier, and now we have an athlete. Verse 6, the hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all th things. So let's look at these three analogies and learn how to be strong in the faith. You must endure hardship. Translated literally, you must suffer. And what is the root of suffering? What is the root of pain in this life? It's loss. You can trace all of the suffering in your life back to loss. Loss is something that we treasure. Loss of something that we value, or something that we find extremely important is taken away from us, whether it be our health, or our comfort, or our safety, or a loved one. The more we value it, the more it hurts when it's gone. And we live in a world that is fading away. We are living in a world that is stricken by loss because of sin. Nothing in this world, apart from the things of the kingdom of God, are eternal. So we are surrounded by things that are fading away. So there's a lot of hurt to go around, isn't there? That's sorrow. Sorrow is suffering loss. And again, the more we value the thing, the more it hurts when we lose it. And again, Paul tells Timothy, there's a cost to following Jesus. There is a price to be paid. If you follow Christ and you are obedient to him and you respond to his call to be with him, to become like him, and to continue the work that he's doing, you will suffer loss. Because that's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 8.18. When Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then we get no indication that the scribe continued to follow Jesus. Jesus said, you want to follow me? It won't be comfortable. 
And the scribe said, I didn't sign up for that. Verse 21, then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. There's always strings attached when it comes to following Jesus. It is very rare that we say, Lord, wherever you go, I'll go. And we actually mean it. Jesus said to his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation. Hence, Paul's plea for Timothy to be strong. So look at this analogy of a soldier first. You know, Paul had a lot of experience with soldiers because he was in prison a lot. So he saw the Roman soldiers and how they acted and how they respected their authority. And he began to think about, wow, these Roman soldiers, they actually have a lot of in common with, with people like me who follow Jesus. Now, let me make something clear. Christians are not at war with unbelievers. We are at war for them. We are at war with our flesh, the devil, and the broken systems of this world. That's who we battle. Those are the enemy. We fight for the lost. So when Paul talks about being a soldier and battling and fighting, it's a war not of flesh and blood. It's a war that is in the spiritual realm. It's a spiritual battle. It's an unseen war. It's an eternal war. So in this analogy, what is important about the soldier that we need to learn about Christians? Two things for you note takers. Focus and fidelity. Focus and fidelity. That's what Timothy needs to learn to be strong. A loose hold on the things of this world and a deep affection for the one who saved us and made us his own. That's where we find strength. We don't get wrapped up in the affairs of this world. That doesn't mean we, we neglect responsibility. There's things that just have to be done. The kids have to get to school in the morning. We can't say, well, Jesus said, or Paul said, don't get wrapped up in the affairs of the world, so you're not going to school and I'm not making you breakfast. Figure it out. That's not, that's not biblical. There are things that need to be done, but there's a difference between being responsible and being wrapped up in the affairs of this world. You know where we get wrapped up? Up here. You know how we know we're wrapped up in something? We can't stop thinking about it. It consumes our thought life. And if it consumes this, it's going to play out through the way we live. Paul says, like a soldier, don't get wrapped up in earthly things. Again, set your mind not on the things below, but the things above. First and foremost, if we want to be strong in the faith, if we want to endure hardship, if we want to suffer well, here's what makes us strong. We allow the things of this world to fade away and we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and we grow in our affection for him because he is the one that saved us and bought us with his blood and he has made us his own. We keep our eyes on him. Paul wrote in Philippians 3.8, Yet indeed I count all things as what? Loss. For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. I suffered and I lost all of these things that I thought at one time were so valuable and so important. But they're gone and to be honest it's nothing to me. I was a Pharisee amongst Pharisees, a Jew amongst Jews. I had position and prestige, and guess what? It's meaningless to me because now I have Jesus, and he paid everything for me. See, when the one thing you value the most in your life cannot be taken away from you, you cannot be manipulated by fear. 
you cannot be controlled. See, fear is a device that the enemy uses to control us, to paralyze us, to dictate what we do and what we don't do. But when the one thing that we value the most cannot be taken away from us, we cannot be controlled. And then you start to see how these martyrs, and and these stories are just so mind-blowing to me, how these martyrs stood before those who demanded that they reject Christ. If they would just deny Christ, they would live. Or, even worse, if they would just deny Christ, their wife would live. I don't remember exactly who it is, and I wish I would have just came to mind now, but the story of a a martyr, he was brought out, and they had his wife in front of him, two soldiers holding her, and they told him, deny Christ or she dies. And she said, don't you dare. Why? Because nobody could take the thing that mattered the most to them. Oh, sure, they could take their lives. But they couldn't take Jesus. They couldn't take their faith. Why would they deny that which was most important to them? And at what cost? Their life? You can have it. Because he is worth far more than even my life. And then we begin to understand how Paul, in this dungeon, writes this letter about the most important thing to him. How he stood before the most powerful men in the world at that time and did not waver. Doesn't mean losing things isn't difficult. There's things in this life that we value deeply. But again, even if it's a loved one, if they have a relationship with Jesus, we suffer, but we don't suffer like those in the world. Because one day we know we will see them again. So if today you're you're reflecting on your own life and and you're thinking, man, I'm so weak. I, just, I don't have that boldness. I don't uh, have that courage. Let me ask, have you entangled yourself in the affairs of this life? Are you wrapped up in them? Do they consume your thoughts and your actions? Is there little room in your mind for anything else but your worry? This is how you are set free. Look to Jesus. And that may just sound like Christianese, but I have to pray that God makes that real to you because Jesus is alive. And if you'll set your mind on him, if you'll look to him, if you'll read about him, if you'll write about him, if you'll think about him, if you'll talk about him, if you'll grow in your relationship with him, the promise is the things of this world will begin to fade in the light of his glory and grace. Uncle John, sing that for us, would you? No, okay. Okay, man, that was, sorry, that was pretty in-depth on that first example. Second example, an athlete. Paul says, train yourself like an athlete. So Paul is now thinking about what? The Greek games, right? Games that would have been just celebrated the irony of today and us talking about the Greek games. But he says, the one who is crowned is the one who competes according to the rules. So these athletes, understand this, they participated in very specific events. Think about our Olympics, right? You train according to the event that you're competing in. You orient your life around the demands of that event. Someone who competes in shot put trains differently than someone who is a javelin thrower or a marathon runner or a sprinter. 
Depending on your event, you have very specific rules that you orient your life around. Your diet, your exercise, how you practice, what you practice. A marathon runner trains differently than a wrestler. A wrestler trains differently than a high jumper. Does that make sense? Here's the point. The athlete knows the goal. They understand the prize. They know what they're competing for. They know what they need to do to win. And as followers of Jesus, we should do the same. We should have the same focus and the same rules for life oriented around our prize. Here's our struggle. We are often training for the wrong sport. Okay, what do you mean by that? Oftentimes, we sit down to study God's word, and what is our motivation? I'm going to win that argument at work. And sometimes it's with other Christians. Oh, that person at church, they believe this, but I'm going to study this, and I'm going to prove them wrong. Make sure they know that I'm right. Or sometimes we just want to appear knowledgeable, and we want to appear spiritual. We're, we're, we're the person who is training just to look at, at to just look good. <laughs> and Paul says, no, you need to think about the athlete. You know, we have a, a, a former Olympian in here. Linda, you were a wrestler? Sprinter, that's right, a sprinter. You had a pretty strict training regimen, I would assume, during that time. And you had to say no to probably a lot of things that you wanted, whether it was time or food or, what was it? No, no gummy bears? <laughs> because you had a goal in mind, and you did well. Finished the race, and you won a prize. Yes. What are we running the race for? Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourselves towards godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach. This is why we suffer, Paul says, because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe these things command and teach. We are training to see others come to know Christ. We are practicing godliness and saying no to the things of the flesh and yes to the things of the Spirit so that people may see Jesus in the way that we live. That's the prize. That's what's worth training for. That's what's worth fighting for. And many of us know we're competing for that. We want people to see Jesus, but we're not orienting our lives around that goal. If you walked in on a friend and they were sitting watching Netflix and just eating Twinkies by the dozen, and you said, hey, what are you up to? And they said, oh, I'm training for the Olympics. You would say, you, I disagree. I humbly disagree. And a lot of us, we, we want people to come to know Christ, but we don't want to adopt the suffering lifestyle of Christ. And when I say suffer, I don't know what that looks like in everyone's lives, but I know that the first place that we suffer is when we say no to the things we want and yes to the things that God wants. We can't even get past that in this American culture of, hey, have it your way every day. But the athlete... They know what their prize is. The soldier, they know who their commander is. And then they orient their lives around those things. We need, and we don't like to talk about rules, but it's okay to have some rules for life for the things that are important. The word of God, getting as much of this into here is important. Are you doing it? Am I doing it? 
meeting with Jesus every day. It's important. When? I don't know when you do that. But I do know that Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you'll abide in the vine, you will bear much fruit. So whether it's a soldier or an athlete, we need spiritual discipline. We need time in prayer. We need to be in fellowship. We need time in the word. We need time in service to others. We need to dictate how we spend our time or our time will be spent for us. And if you need help in this area, just ask. Talk to some men and women who have walked with Jesus for a a while and say, how do you, I I know I, I can't just model it perfectly, but how do you make time for all the things that are important? And then finally, Paul uses one more analogy, and this is a favorite of his, that of a hardworking farmer. And I don't think you can be a farmer if you're not hardworking. Some of the hardest working people I know, they were farmers. They had no holidays. The cows didn't know it was Christmas. They didn't give them a day off. They had to be milked every single day. There was no getting out of it early in the morning to late at night. They worked hard, they toiled, they strived, they struggled. But it's interesting because Paul takes it in a different direction. He doesn't just say you need to work hard like a farmer, but he says you must be the first to partake of the crops. He says you can't feed others well unless you feed yourself first. How can you show others to be strong in the faith If you're not strong yourself, you have to taste and experience the goodness of God personally before you can share it with others. The best evangelist is the one whose greatest joy is to be with Jesus. Those are the best evangelists. Not those who have taken classes and they know, know the five spiritual laws and all that stuff may be good, but show me someone who has deeply moved by the person of Jesus, and I'll show you a solid evangelist. All right, let's close things out. Look at verse 8. Remember that Jesus Christ, Paul says, now here, here's the overflow of Paul's love for Jesus. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Personal for him, isn't it? He's not saying this is my good news. He's saying this is good news for me. This is my gospel. This is what I've given my life to, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. I love that. The word of God is not chained. Well, they're taking God out of our schools. They're taking God out of our government. They're pushing God out of our churches. They're shutting down voices that speak the name of Jesus. Guys, the word of God cannot be chained. Therefore, Paul says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here's the reminder, suffering for Christ is worth it. I pro- if you are a human being, you are going to suffer in this life. The question is, are you suffering for Christ or are you just suffering? Because again, this world is dying. Paul says, I suffer and I endure so that others may obtain salvation. It's the heart of Jesus, isn't it? He says it's it's worth it. He says, remember Jesus, remember that he suffered, and remember me. I suffer as an evildoer, but I endure it all for the sake of the elect. What does the author of Hebrews say? That for the joy set before Christ, he endured the cross. And what was his joy? Bringing us into his family. Suffering for Christ is worth it. This is a faithful saying, Paul says, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, 
He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things. Charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruiner of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun, push away profane and idle babblings. You know what profane and idle babblings are? Pointless and unactionable chatter. I don't know if unactionable is a word, but I like it. Because there's a lot of talk today that just goes nowhere. And, and I get it, there's an obsession about end times events, and we want to know the characters, and we want to know the, the timing, and we want to know all these things. But if we do, then what? We should be urgent about the gospel regardless about what the time frame is. Next time we're having a discussion and we're getting worked up and we're arguing and we're debating, let's take a step back and say, is any of this something that I can actually act on? Is there anything I can do about it? Because if not, I know what my calling is. Maybe I need to reorient myself and think about the things above and not the things below. Paul says, cast that stuff aside, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenus and Philetus are of this sort. They've strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Paul says, ultimately, only God knows who's saved. But don't surprise people when you get to heaven. Don't, don't have people in heaven say, oh, what, what's he doing here? He says, depart from iniquity. God knows who's saved, but you live a life worthy of your calling. Strengthen yourself in the power of God. It does. It feels like this cultural wave is overwhelming. But God's not given us a spirit of fear. He's given us a spirit of power and love 